Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 15 together this morning. We're in the midst of an exposition of the Gospel of John. And we've been studying, uh, most recently, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, a Pharisee who comes to see him at night. We've been looking at how <clears throat> excuse me, Nicodemus is struggling to understand what Jesus has told him concerning the new birth or what it means to be born again or we've said born from above or born of God. Those are all phrases that we can use uh, as synonyms for what Jesus has been explaining to Nicodemus. And we continue with this dialogue together this morning in John chapter 3. If you're able to, would you please stand with me? I'm going to read aloud as you follow along in your text. I'm going to start in verse 1 of John 3 and read down to verse 15. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John writes, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel when I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe them, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You may be seated Pray that God's word in the, both the Old and New Testament readings will be a blessing to you this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we do indeed thank you for your word. We thank you that we can open it this morning and study it together. And I pray, Lord, that you would, by your spirit who inspired these words and the original autographs, that you would now illuminate our eyes and our hearts to an understanding of these truths. Lord, I know I pray that often, every Sunday in fact, but I don't want us to lose the sense of that, that that is true, that by your Spirit you can give us understanding. This is divine word that we're reading this morning, and so we pray for that indeed. And Lord, I pray that if there are those who do not know you, that as they hear the word preached, that your Spirit would regenerate them, even what we're speaking about this morning, bring new life so that they might repent and believe the gospel For those of us who know you, Lord, may we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, worshiping you with greater knowledge, deeper understanding. May we live our lives more fully for you, not to earn any favor with you. That's all been earned by Christ, but because it is 
Uh, Lord, what you desire of us, and we know that we will find fullness of life in it. So I pray that you would get me out of the way. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would humble me still. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In great adventure novels and uh, more likely for our generation movies, there is sometimes a pattern played out in which the protagonists may find themselves in trouble and in need of great help, and at the moment of greatest need, help arrives. One such moment, portrayed a bit differently from novel to movie, is the arrival of Gandalf at the Battle of Helm's Deep. If you don't know what I'm talking about, shame on you. (laughs) Go get the Lord of the Rings trilogy and read them. It's very good. The movie, of course, makes it a bit more dramatic for the screen, but both essentially have mankind, along with a few other creatures of Middle-earth, awaiting the great wizard to return with help in order for the battle to be won and for the enemy to be vanquished. And when Gandalf arrives with those whom he has gathered for help, the fighters on the ground look up and exclaim, It is Gandalf. It is Mithrandir, his elven name. And as they look to his coming, he arrives to help. But even here, the great quest of the ring is not over. There is much more peril for those ahead in the story of the Lord of the Rings. The same is true of Israel. When they look to the serpent on the pole to be rescued from the venomous serpents on the ground, as we saw in our opening reading, there was much more peril before them. As the author of Hebrews writes, as it is said, he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Speaking of those in the children of Israel who continue to rebel against the Lord and his desire for them to not trust him, to not entrust themselves to him. The author of Hebrews goes on for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not, listen, all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? This is the sort of swath of the wanderings of Israel as they disobeyed the Lord, even as we saw in this example in Numbers 21, when they sinned and the Lord sent venomous snakes after them to punish them for their sin, and yet provides a way for them to live. Was it not these as well who later on fell in the wilderness? Continuing in this passage in Hebrews, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of, and here's an interesting word after we hear all these things about disobedience, because of unbelief, it says. Because they did not trust God. They did not entrust themselves to God. Even as they had seen him provide for them, In the wilderness, whether that was for their daily need of food or for rescue from the punishment of their own sin, yet there were those who still 
rebelled. And their rebellion can be summed up in one word, unbelief. That promise that they were to believe was what has happened, certainly, and what we now look back upon. The victory has already been won, as we even sang about this morning, as we look to the one who hung on a tree, Jesus Christ, who in this passage the Lord himself draws a parallel with that serpent upon the staff that we'll look at together this morning. And yet, the end has not come for us either. There is more to come. But we are assured of the final victory because the Son of Man has already been lifted up. And He has already died, having lived a perfect life, being the perfect Lamb of God on that cross, being raised again and coming again. And we are assured of the final victory because He has been lifted up. He will return victoriously at the last battle to show His power over sin and death. And we will cry, Look, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is but a piece of that great narrative that Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus. A piece that broadens to the scope of the whole, however. So we continue this conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus as Jesus draws an analogy, as I mentioned, from this Old Testament narrative that we read this morning. Here's the main point this morning. This is on the back of your worship folder written there for you. The Son of Man had to be lifted up in order that those who believe in Him might live. And life eternal certainly is something that we look forward to, but we must recognize that it begins at the moment that He rescues us, that He saves us, that He redeems us, that He regenerates us and gives us repentance and faith and we believe in Him. Eternal life begins today and goes on into eternity. So the Son of Man had to be lifted up in order that those who believe in Him might live. I want us to see this morning three truths Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus. Three truths just in this, these few verses that Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus to try to help Nicodemus understand exactly what He is saying. And we see the first in verses 9-11. through 11. Jesus stresses the need to understand what He is saying. But look again at verse 9 of John chapter 3. Nicodemus said to Him, How can these things be. Nicodemus finds what Jesus has told him concerning regeneration, that birth from above, and the kingdom of God as hard to believe. He asks him, how, how can these things be? Obviously, this is not what Nicodemus has expected to hear from Jesus when he came to him that evening. Jesus had explained to him that the way in which someone sees and enters into the kingdom of heaven is not through some means of having a religious lineage, but rather through the means of being born again, born from above, born of God. We've used those phrases purposefully to get that into our mind, that that is what happens. And for some reason, this seems to be all news to Nicodemus. And Jesus actually challenges him in this. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. The article here is, is in the original language, the teacher of Israel, and it implies that Nicodemus is a teacher of the highest order in Israel. How will Israel, it's kind of what Jesus is saying here, how will Israel understand these things if even their lead teacher doesn't get it? But you, Nicodemus, surely 
You should understand these truths. What is the implication here? The implication is that if you are one who is a teacher or one of the main teachers of the children of Israel, as a Pharisee would be and someone of Nicodemus' stature should be, how is it that you don't get this? The implication is that these things are there. These things are in the Old Testament. Remember, uh, as Jesus is speaking these words, the only Scripture available to anyone at this time is the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, they had a copy of God's Word, the Old Testament, the, um, the Law of God, the Writings, the Prophets, um, in what's called the Septuagint. It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew text. They, they had that in their language, much like we are able to read the Bible in our language, and that's what they would have studied from. That's what they quote from often. Not that also they would not have understood Hebrew. They probably did as well. But the common tongue of that day was the Greek, and the Septuagint would have been their Bible, essentially. So Jesus is challenging Nicodemus here. How is it that you, being the teacher of Israel, do not understand these things? These things are there. Indeed, what Jesus has just stated earlier about being born of water and the Spirit seems to be best understood, as we mentioned last week, as Ezekiel's prophecy concerning the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, that you will be renewed and refreshed by the Spirit. You'll be washed anew and be given a new heart. That seems to be the overtone of what Jesus is saying here. So Jesus then takes this challenge a bit further and applies it to what he has been proclaiming and what the Pharisees already reject, which is what Jesus is proclaiming and has been proclaiming in what we see in verse 11. So Jesus challenges him in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Here again, we see this authoritative position that Jesus takes when he says, truly, truly. It's as if he's saying, amen and amen at the beginning of his statement rather than saying it at the end of his statement. Most of the time, the teachers in this day were simply quoting from other rabbis, other teachers of their day, and they would end their quoting of that person by saying, amen and amen. I agree with what rabbi so-and-so has said. Jesus, on the other hand, is saying, amen and amen, I'm giving you something. (laughs) I'm the rabbi who is going to be quoted here. Truly, truly. Now, this is a curious uh, change of person in the language to plural. He says, we speak, we know, we bear witness to what we have seen and our testimony. See it there? I say to you... And, and actually, the you there changes to plural. It goes from him speaking singularly of Nicodemus now to seem, seeming that he's talking about either all the Pharisees or all of Israel. We say to, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of, uh, to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So who is this we? How are we to understand this phrase? Well, it could be referring to the testimony of Jesus and his followers. Uh, in the narrative of John's gospel, they had, after all, at least seen him perform 
one miracle up until this point, and he had been teaching them, certainly from um, the Old Testament as well. So it could be this idea that Jesus and his followers are proclaiming this truth, and Nicodemus, the Pharisees in Israel, are not accepting it. It could also be referring to a Trinitarian we. Uh, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, we understand, is sent by his Father and is guided by the Holy Spirit. So this could be the idea of Trinitarian revelation of truth. Um, You know, John begins his gospel with this idea of Jesus being in the beginning and being the Word of God. Um, co-equal with God in essence, different in what he does. There's a lot of theology behind that that, that, that uh, is hard to unpack in just a short amount of time, but the idea that each person in the Trinity works out their role within the Trinity without any distinction of um, essence, but certainly distinction of persons. And so he might be expressing this. Look, I have been, he says this often in, in the Gospel of John. I have been sent by the Father to do his will. Right? He does things by the power of the Spirit. Uh, Peter says in his sermon that Luke records in Acts chapter 2. So it could be that, the witness of the Trinity here. Perhaps he means the prophets of old. And the testimony that they have had and Jesus himself being a prophet or rather the prophet is explaining that this is what has been prophesied all along. Uh, Listen to what it says in uh, Mark 12 as Jesus gives this parable. Israel killed the prophets rejecting their message and they will kill the son as well. If you have a chance, look that up later in Mark chapter 12. It says the prophets come along, they're trying to explain to the um, well, it's, he's using an illustration, but essentially as the prophets come along and Israel kills them, so the king sends his son and they kill him as well. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-3 through 3 says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be ours search and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have been uh, announced to you, now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So what is Peter saying there? He's saying that the, the prophets of the Old Testament were, as they were writing Scripture, as they were proclaiming things to Israel, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Messiah, was in them, and they were wondering what, what time would the, would the Christ come and, 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 and suffer. I mean, Peter is, in, in, in a sense, almost condemning Nicodemus here uh, l- much later on for not knowing these things as well. They should have known these things. So the we here could be any of those or maybe all of those explanations. But we know this, it is upon this authority, certainly a Trinitarian authority, certainly a scriptural authority, who wrote the scripture, if not the Trinity, by the acts of men, as Peter says as well. But it is upon this authority that Jesus speaks, 
And what does he say? His testimony has not been received. The first challenge of Jesus and Nicodemus here is that Nicodemus has not understood the things of Scripture. And he says, it seems to either possibly just the Pharisees or even all of Israel at this point, you have not received this testimony. You know, one of the applications for us as those who are in Christ is this. We must be about the task of knowing and applying the Scriptures. It is not for the sake of earning favor with God, but of knowing God and what He has revealed concerning Himself within. This tells us about us and about Him, about our sin and our need of a Savior. And we need to live a life according to His will for our joy and for His glory. Worshiping Him with our lives. I hope that the Lord could not say to me, how did you not know this? We need to be students of His Word. Not for the sake of knowledge alone, but for loving Him and worshiping Him and loving others as He has called us to do. And I know that there are some in our midst possibly who are unregenerate. You've not trusted in Christ. I say to you, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And the Scriptures are pointing to the fact that you need to turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone. You cannot save yourself. Your sin is condemning you. We'll see that in the coming verses. Those who do not believe in the Son are condemned already. If you are not in Christ, that is your current status. My call to you is to repent, to turn from your sin and trust in Him today. The challenge of our Lord to Nicodemus does not end here, but rather continues as Jesus speaks of earthly and heavenly truth. Number two, Jesus stresses the need to understand from where he has come. Jesus stresses the need for Nicodemus to understand from where he has come. The continuation of this last challenge is to bring into focus what Nicodemus does not grasp. If he's interested in the things of the kingdom and is struggling to understand these things, how can he grasp what, we, what Jesus is about to tell him? Look at it again. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What are the earthly things and the heavenly things to which Jesus refers here? D.A. Carson in his commentary recounts that some believe by earthly things, Jesus may be referring to his statements about natural birth and the wind and the spirit, uh, correlating those two issues there. And then the, the heavenly, those realities to which those earthly things point. However, Carson, Carson himself holds, and I agree with this, that the earthly thing that Nicodemus should understand is the new birth, is this being born from above. It happens in time and space. It happens in reality upon the earth. And that how can he handle the greater kingdom truths if he cannot grasp this basic truth about regeneration? In fact, we see Jesus later on using parables to explain kingdom truths. And only those with eyes to see or ears to hear, as he says, could understand them. It could be that Jesus is referring to that. But there is more for Jesus to reveal to Nicodemus. And he's saying, how can you understand these things if you don't grasp what I am telling you currently? To add to it, Jesus reveals that he himself has such insight because he is from 
heaven. Look at verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven. You know, speaking of, how can you believe if I tell you these heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Anything concerning heaven has only been revealed by God through his messengers, whether angels or in some instances, the angel of the Lord. Or as he has men write things down, carried along by the Spirit. But I think that what we need to understand this as concerning Jesus himself is the incarnation. The incarnation is the greatest revelation of God and heaven to mankind. Here Jesus reveals from where he has come and to where he will return. Jesus' claim to authority here is that he is the only one who can disclose heavenly matters in the way that he does. And he also describes himself as the Son of Man. I, I think we lose the importance of this conversation when we skip over little pieces of information like this. Jesus is saying, I am from heaven. And I'm, going, I'm the one who can reveal these heavenly things to you. And we hold and we must hold that um, the incarnation is the greatest revelation of God to us. That's what the scriptures tell us. And here Jesus is, you know, perhaps on a rooftop, hidden from sight of anybody else, revealing something about himself to this Pharisee. Things that in his earthly ministry are for the most part really veiled from the sight of people like Nicodemus. And and it's almost as if he's saying, don't you understand who I am? In fact, that's exactly what he's saying because he uses this phrase, son of man. Now this idea of son of man would signify something to Nicodemus as well. If you recall our study a few months ago in the book of Daniel, this term is used about one in the visions of Daniel. Listen to Daniel's words in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus uses this phrase about himself, it, it, it's almost like maybe he's testing Nicodemus's knowledge of the Old Testament again. Maybe you didn't understand these things, Nicodemus, but do you understand this one, son of man? So there's little doubt that Nicodemus would have missed the implication of this. Jesus is claiming to be the one who is prophesied about in Daniel. At certain times of the year, we see news stories about uh, this topic. Who is the real Jesus? Recognize here who he is. He is the Son of Man. In a moment, we'll see he is also the Son of God. The God-man, truly God, truly man, truly come to live a life of perfection where Adam failed, where Israel failed, to fulfill the law of God completely, to be that perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world 
as John the baptizer says. This is who Jesus truly is. Therefore, I call to you again, turn from your sin and trust in him if you have not. Believer, don't forget who your king is. He is benevolent, gracious, and merciful. And living for him and worshiping him is how we live our lives. He is not a part of our life. He is our life. And the truths Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus are all these matters that we spoke of last week concerning the kingdom. Even this idea of son of man. What does it say back in Daniel? He has a kingdom that lasts forever and it will not be destroyed. I think that we, we have to assume that Nicodemus is beginning to catch on to this idea of seeing and entering the kingdom and that that is only through Jesus whose kingdom it is. The kingdom, I think the scriptures describe, as a, is inaugurated at the coming of Messiah. And specifically as the reality of the new covenant comes to fruition. This too reminds us of how we're to live as kingdom citizens. We are representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ here on earth if we are in Christ. You ever think about that word, represent? Represent? What is... Jesus calls to do, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that He has taught them, and He is with them to the end of the age. That kingdom breaks into reality after the ascension and the coming of the Spirit. We begin to see that invisible, yes, currently kingdom, come to light as we go forth and make disciples. But the nature of that inaugurated and coming kingdom is not what Nicodemus or many Jews in his day would have expected, which is what we see in our final point. Number three, Jesus stresses the need to understand what he has come to do. He stresses the need to understand what he has come to do. Jesus seems to take this language of ascension In verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who is descended from heaven, but the Son of Man. And then apply it to this phrase of being lifted up. Look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. We heard this uh, read to us this morning in our Old Testament reading, but let's turn there once again. Numbers chapter 21. If you would please keep your finger in John chapter 3. Numbers chapter 21. What do we notice from our reading this morning? Look at verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. What are they missing? They're missing the exodus. They're missing the great deliverance of God, not only from slavery, but from certain death. The final plague that God brought upon Egypt was that if there was no 
blood from a slaughtered lamb on the doorpost, the doorframe of your door, your firstborn would be slaughtered. But they're in the wilderness and they say, our tummies hurt, we're kind of hungry. For there is no food and no water. We loathe this worthless food. So is there no food or no water? No, they just don't like the food that God has provided for them. Then the Lord, Yahweh, sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, notice what it says, we have made a mistake. Boy, we really tripped over our words there, Moses, didn't we? And what does it say? We have sinned. We have transgressed God. For we have spoken against the Lord Yahweh and against you. Pray to the Lord Yahweh that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it. It could could be the word affixed it to a pole or a standard. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Again, what do we see here? The people recognize that they have sinned against God. God makes a way for them to be saved from the fiery, uh, which really means poisonous serpents. What must they do? They must look and live. Some have postulated, wouldn't it be interesting if Moses attached the bronze serpent to the standard by fixing its head to the staff, symbolizing Genesis 3.15, the crushing of the head of the serpent. Speculation, we'll find out one day, it'd be kind of neat if it was. Jesus takes this well-known event from the Old Testament and draws an analogy to himself and what must happen to him. He must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. One of the things we can certainly draw a parallel is this. What happens to the serpent in Genesis 3? It is cursed. The Deuteronomy says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a what? Tree. New Testament writers understood the only way, excuse the colloquialism, to reverse the curse is for the curse to be placed on the tree. Jesus is presenting here the only way for mankind to be reconciled to God. Verse 15 of John chapter 3 is, of course, followed by the most famous verse in Scripture, which tells us the way in which God has loved the people of this world. By giving his only son, which we'll look at together next week. But Jesus here in the final verse of our study claims the exclusive way in which people receive eternal life. The way in which people see and enter the kingdom of God. He said it previously, you must be born again. You must be born of God. And this 
is the step which makes it all possible. The Son of Man must be lifted up. He must be that one who is placed, attached, affixed to the tree. And by so doing, bring eternal life for all who would believe in Him. Now we know the end of the story, don't we? We know what Jesus says in the rest of John 3 here. Maybe perhaps at the end of this conversation, Nicodemus is still questioning what exactly this means, that he would be like the serpent lifted up. But we know. Jesus was placed on a cross. Pilate says, I find nothing wrong with him. Innocent before man. Innocent before God. Pilate puts a sign above Jesus' head on the cross that says what? King of the Jews. It's kingdom, right? All of this comes together at the cross. And on that cross, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Drawing attention back to Psalm 22. That he is the Messiah and he has come to pay the debt. The question remains for us this morning this. Of what kingdom are you a citizen? Of this world? You must see, as the children of Israel did, that you have sinned against God. Just as I have and anybody else who has ever been born except for the Lord Jesus Christ. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. That's what the law does. The law exposes our hearts and shows us that we cannot earn our way into God's favor. We cannot step across the threshold of the kingdom of God by our own power. It must be that we are born of God. So today, I call to you and say, recognize that you are a sinner. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection. His finished work on the cross is the only way to be made right with God and to enter into and to see the kingdom. Look to Him and live. Maybe you're a citizen who is not of this world because you're in Christ. We are dual citizens living for the King of Kings until He comes for us to establish His visible and final rule. Until then, we are His kingdom representatives. Live for and love Him. How do we do that? (laughs) Is this the Sunday school lesson, Jason, where you tell us to read our Bibles more and pray more? Sure. That's okay. We should do that, right? Not just read it, but live by it. Trust Him that when He says, this is the best way for you to live your life according to my word and will, that He is not seeking to kill your joy. He's seeking to fulfill your joy. Live for Him and love Him. Love and serve others. Jesus boils it all down to that, doesn't He? Love God and love neighbor. Look around you. If you're a part of this local assembly, this is where he wants you to start. First in your home, if you're in in a family, in your home, husband-wife relationship, those certainly are very important. As we look around at this family that God has given us, as we have covenanted especially together in membership, he wants for us to serve one another well.
Would you pray with me? Lord, if we're in your, we're kingdom people. Help us to live accordingly. If we're not in you, condemnation is certain for those who do not turn from their sin and believe. So I pray today, Lord, that you would take stony hearts and make them flesh. That they would be born of you and that you would grant them repentance and faith so they might believe in the good news. Lord, I pray for those of us who know you that we would continue to preach the gospel to ourselves and live accordingly because you have won it all for us already. Praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.